I want to give you a little bit of a road map over the next few weeks as to where we're going because Psalms 11 to 14 deal with a, a series of problems. In, in Psalm 11, we're dealing with violence and the destruction of the foundations of society. Yeah, that's, that's happened before. This isn't the first time. In Psalm 12, we deal with words, lies, flattery, the sins of the tongue. In Psalm 13, we see the absence of God when my enemies prevail because God isn't answering. In Psalm 14, we'll, we'll take another look at practical atheism, like what we saw last time, when we forget the Lord our God. Psalm 15 then brings all these themes together in asking, Who shall dwell on God's holy hill? Describing the character of the one who will dwell with God. And then Psalm 16 shows us how God will raise up the son of David so that he will be the one who dwells with God on his holy hill. And Psalm 17 is the prayer of David where the Davidic king asks God to deliver him. And all this leads up to Psalm 18, the song of David celebrating God's faithfulness, which we learn from Second Samuel 22. David sang this towards the end of his life and as reflecting back on, on all that God had done. And I, I lay this out for you just quickly because... I want you to see that while we may be singing and going through each psalm separately, they're also designed to be seen together. Books 1 and 2 of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 72, set forth a picture of what the kingdom of God should look like. At the end of book 2, in Psalm 72, verse 20, we hear these words, The prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. It doesn't mean that David wrote all of books 1 and 2. There are lots of psalms of Asaph and the sons of Korah. Psalm 72 itself is said to be a a psalm of Solomon. So when it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, it's referring to the prayers, the songs that speak of the Davidic kingdom in its integrity. The songs that are sung thinking about, ah, the king is sitting on the throne. He at least is who he should be. Although, as you know from the story of David and his sons, well, sort of. <laughs> but Psalm, Psalm 73 to 89, book 3 of the Psalter, is all about the exile. When the Davidic kingdom was overthrown. When God's people wondered, would God be faithful to his covenant to David? That question doesn't really run through book, books 1 and 2. Books 1 and 2 all operate on the assumption that the king is on the throne. Book three, it will ask, uh, now what? Is God going to be faithful to his promises? Is it even okay to ask that question? Yes, the psalmists do. It's okay to ask the question. It's okay to ask, what's God doing? These are important questions as we're going to, as we go through the psalms. And and partly I, I say this in this context because as we learn to read and sing and pray the Psalms, uh, all too often we get sort of caught up in, ah, who is the original author and what was the original context? And, and all the time that we spend trying to guess at author context, uh, gets, we wind up losing track of what is going on. What, what, what are these songs doing? These songs were given Israel to sing. When, when I first started uh, preaching on the Psalms, I had been taught, ah, what would it mean for Israel to sing the song? 
How does this, how does it point to Jesus? And then how do we sing the song? And what I've begun to realize after now preaching through the whole Psalter once is that that's pulling apart things that the Psalms keep separate. The Psalms are about David and Israel. And so they're about Christ and the church. This is that you can't pull these things apart. They belong together. And as we see how Israel sang these songs with David, we are seeing how we sing these songs with Jesus. He is the first person singular of the song, just the Davidic voice. This is the voice of our Lord Jesus, which we join in as we have been united to him. So it's not that sort of like, oh, here's what I meant for them. Here's what I mean. No, it's David and Israel, Jesus and us. It all fits together. Our New Testament lesson comes from Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear now the word of our God from Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you hear people say that that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But as we see in Psalm 11, verse 5, it says that God, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's soul, the the deepest part of him, hates the wicked. How can that be? Doesn't God love everything that he made? Yes. It is entirely possible to love the sinner, and hate the sinner at the same time. How? Well, insofar as this person is made in the image of God, God loves him. Because he made him in his own image. God loves everything he made. Insofar as this person is in rebellion against God and seeking to destroy God and God's creation, God hates him. God hates actually precisely because 
he is love. Because, you see, this is where the difference, the distinction is that God is love. God is not hate. The only reason why God hates is because there are those who are trying to destroy what he loves. And when God makes all things right in the end, he will have nothing left to hate. Therefore, God is not hate, but God is love. It's the same reason why you and I can hate evil and indeed hate those who do evil. Because we love them. Not because, it's not, it's not that we want them, we want bad things for them at any sort of fundamental level. We want good things for them at the most fundamental level. And therefore we can't let them keep doing what they're doing insofar as we have any ability to do anything about it. It's the, it's the old story which I often have told, you know, if you're at a park and so, you know, somebody tries to run off with your kid, what are you going to say? Oh, I love you. Keep my kid. No. You're going to go out and get my, get my kid back. And that's, that's, that you do that because you actually, you actually are doing that out of love for the kidnapper. It's not a good thing for the kidnapper to have your kid. Really, seriously, it's not. <laughs> so you actually, I mean, you, I know at the moment you're probably not thinking, oh, I love you so much, give me, but, but when you are motivated by love, you will still get angry and do stuff to make things right. Love isn't just a sappy, syrupy, sentimental, sort of like, ah, isn't everything nice? No, love, love will at times say, this is a problem, it needs to stop. That's still love. And that's what God is doing with the wicked. He's saying, no, this has to stop. This can't continue on forever. And this is important for us to think about as we think about how we are to live in a crooked and perverse generation when the foundations are destroyed. Psalm 11, verse 3 asks, When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, as we've seen, book one of the Psalter sees David and his sons on the throne. In a sense, the world as it should be. The king is on the throne. And the laments and complaints in book one focus on disruption within the world as it should be. David was supposed to fulfill all that Israel failed to do and to be. He was supposed to. <laughs> but when David and his sons do justice from the throne of Israel... That makes Israel whole. Um, this is why Jesus is the one who f- finally fulfills all that we failed to do and to be. And that's why Jesus makes us whole. Psalm 11 opens with the line, In the Lord I take refuge. Continuing this theme of refuge that we've been seeing in book one of the Psalter. And when you think about what it means to take refuge in the Lord, it is, it's, this is what Psalm 8 had spoken of as it spoke of, of the, the, the kingdom of God being restored, the Son of Man sitting on the throne in the midst of the promised land, the fulfillment of what Adam was supposed to be. That David became, you know, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength. Israel, this puny, feeble little nation, is yet the place where the God of heaven and earth dwells, and he has put all things under the feet of the son of David, and this will stop the mouths of the wicked. And Hebrews tells us that this day has come in Jesus. We don't yet see everything under his feet, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In Jesus, there is now a man who sits at the right hand of the Father. He has been made perfect through suffering. He has been crowned with glory and honor as the second Adam, the last Adam, the one who restores humanity to fellowship with God, the one who restores humanity to living in the presence of God. And that vision of the king as the son of man, the son of David, is essential for seeing what Psalm 11 is doing. Because Psalm 11 reminds us we don't yet see everything under his feet. Right now we've got two problems. And verse 2 shows us one of them. When the psalmist says, In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. How often have you seen this in a movie? The sniper's lying in wait waiting to to get the good guy. And the good guy's walking innocently into the trap, and you sit there on the edge of your seat, he's going to shoot you, but there's nothing you can do. It's a movie. He's dead. The reason why it makes, makes such good theater is because it plays on one of our most powerful fears, the sneak attack, the ambush. When you're walking alone in the middle of nowhere, perhaps at night, do you, do you get a little jumpy? Yeah. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan works on the same fear. Yeah. A man was on the road to Jericho, alone, isolated, attacked by robbers. Now, the problem in Psalm 11 is a little more specific. It's a sneak attack, a, a sniper in the dark, but it's, it's not a random attack. It's, it's not just like, oh, this happened to be the guy wandering by. It's the wicked here who are particularly focused on the upright in heart. They've got a target in view. Psalm 11 draws a really clear line between the righteous and the wicked. Now, there are other passages that point out that this line is a line in our own hearts. But in Psalm 11, we're, we're seeing this as in a particular case. In this case, there's a wicked man and there's a righteous man. And these are being separated out. In many cases, it may be more challenging to figure out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. But here in Psalm 11, it's making it very clear. In some situations, there are times when there's the righteous and the wicked. I mean, you think back to what ISIS was doing, Al-Qaeda, I mean, trying to destroy the upright in heart, murdering and enslaving the innocent. There are times when it's, it's actually pretty clear. But the scriptures oftentimes use this language of the upright and the wicked in a particular situation. Here in this situation, when when one person is plotting to murder another, okay, we've got a wicked person and we've got a righteous person. And in our, what do you do when the wicked are trying to destroy the righteous? Well, the problem here is not just a matter of occasional wrongs that are being corrected by a righteous community. The problem is much deeper. And that's where the second part of the problem comes into focus in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, if you remember what I said earlier, books 1 and 2 of the Psalter presuppose a functioning Davidic kingdom. The son of David is sitting on the throne. There is a temple, verse 4, where the name of the Lord dwells. At least in theory, the kingdom of God is here and now, right? What's going on? Things are not the way they should be. 
Yes, there's a son of David sitting on the throne. God is in his holy temple, but the wicked seem to be winning. Sound familiar? The Davidic king is supposed to establish righteousness and justice. And as we've seen, justice is how you decide a particular case. Righteousness has to do with how you order your community. In a righteous community that's a well-ordered community, there may still be occasional injustices, but the way the community functions is basically right, and so there's ways of dealing with these injustices and then try to remedy them. But the problem in verse 3 is that the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do when unrighteousness is in power, when the system is broken, when injustice is allowed to flourish unchecked? What can the righteous do? It's tempting to take, to take the call, uh, uh, flee like a bird to your mountain. The psalmist reflects on the fact that his friends are discouraged. They look around and they don't see righteousness and justice in Israel. The son of David may be sitting on the throne, but wickedness seems to prevail in the land. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Oh, I know Jesus is king. I know that Jesus sits enthroned as Lord over all things for the sake of the church. He is the great son of David. He is God and man in one person. He sits enthroned at the right hand of God in the heavenly temple. And yet, the wicked are still trying to destroy the upright in heart. And yet, in every generation, we keep singing Psalm 11. Because this isn't the first time in human history when the foundations... It's actually in every generation. It's fascinating. Oftentimes, we look back in history and say, we we tend to see golden ages. Anybody here tempted to think that, oh, the Reformation, wouldn't that have been a great time? The people who lived through the Reformation sang Psalm 11 regularly, thinking, wow, the foundations are destroyed. Everything's falling apart. Nothing. We get these ideas of, I mean, one of the things I've, I've done as a historian is anytime I'm, I'm tempted to think about, oh, if only it was like back then. I then go and I read the people who actually lived back then when they're talking about the, what they were dealing with. And I'm like, ooh, okay. Um, in every generation, it looks to the people who live in that generation as though the foundations were being destroyed. This is a common human problem. We sing it every generation because it's true every generation. In our day, it certainly appears as though the foundations of our society have been destroyed. The sexual revolution has turned adulterers into heroes, and anyone who refuses to bow before the new order can expect to be attacked. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The psalmist rejects the option of running away. Flee to the mountains. No, this is not the time to run. Now, there will be a time to run, Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25 that when judgment comes upon Jerusalem, that's the time to run to the hills. Likewise, Revelation 18 and 19 speaks of the fall of Babylon in similar language. When God brings judgment on the wicked, that's the time to run away. The time when the wicked seem to be in power, that's not the time to run away. For now, there's another solution. And that solution is where we started. In the Lord, I take refuge. I trust in him even when the foundations are destroyed. And there may be two parts to the problem, but there's only one solution. Take refuge in the Lord and do what's right. Those aren't two different things. 
taking refuge in the Lord and doing what's right are the same thing. The psalmist does not say that I must make things right, but I must do what is right. Making things right is what God will do. Doing what is right is what I'm called to do. It's part of what it means to be holy as I am holy, as when God tells us, be holy as I am holy, recognizing what our call is in relation to who he is. Notice where the psalmist starts. Okay, What are the righteous to do when the foundations are destroyed? Where does he start? Who is God? When you're getting overwhelmed by the wickedness of the present age, remember who God is. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord is in his holy temple. The the, the faithful never confuse the earthly temple with God's dwelling place. You can see clearly here that he's not just saying, oh, the Lord is in his temple in Jerusalem. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The earthly temple was viewed as the, the, the footstool for God's feet. Heaven is your, my throne. The earth is my footstool. The holy of holies was the place where earth and heaven met. You know, the high priest, as we've been seeing in Leviticus in the evening service, the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year. And when the high priest goes into the holy of holies, where is he going? He's going into heaven. He's entering into the age to come. He's entering into the presence of the living God. He, I mean, when, you look, when you look carefully at Hebrews 9, when Hebrews is describing what, what the Holy of Holies is, it's, the high priest is doing time travel. He's entering the age to come. He's getting a sneak peek of what is going to be. And he gets that once a year, and then he's back to ordinary life. But you see, this is what Jesus has done, Hebrew says. Jesus has, has, did not just enter into an earthly holy of holies and get a sneak peek. Jesus entered the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus entered into the right hand of the Father, sat down at the right hand of the Father. There is now a man sitting at the right hand of God where now humanity has been joined. God has joined himself to our humanity in the incarnation of Jesus. In Jesus, this is now everything that the psalmists were saying has come true in him. And because our Lord Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, because God dwells in the heavens, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. What do you do with your eyes? You evaluate a situation by looking. But sort of as you think about the key to what you see depends a lot on what your presumptions are going in. A friend of mine was standing in his front yard and a, a passerby shouted, Hey, what are you doing there? He said, I, I, I live here. My friend is black. He was standing in his front yard. But the people driving by just thought he was an intruder about to break into his own house. Another friend told me that when he's in a, in a store, if he, if he sees that there's a white woman in the aisle, he, he feels the need to... Uh, just hum or whistle or make a little bit of noise so that she knows he's there because she does, he doesn't want her to be surprised when a big black man happens to appear in the aisle next to her. 
I don't know how many of you have ever thought about what it's like to be a black man living in a white world, but when you think about what your eyes do and how we judge and how we think, and how, you know, we oftentimes judge by appearances, and we need to be careful about that. Because as I listened to these stories, I began to realize that I had unwittingly done the same thing. I, when, I, when, I would, when I would be downtown years ago, if, if there was a black man walking towards me, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, oh, yeah, now I, I live downtown. And when I see a black man walk down the street, I make a point of seeing not a threat, not a risk, but a man. I also live a block away from a liquor store, so regardless of what race he might be, I'm also aware that he may be somewhat inebriated. And I'm often right. Um, but your eyes test, your eyes see. And, and yes, it's undoubtedly true that sometimes because I live a block away from a liquor store, I may at times have mistakenly thought that somebody was asking for money because they wanted to go to the liquor store. On the other hand, most of the time I've been right. But that's still, I have to guard it. Am I judging the situation correctly? I mean, understanding, yes. What do we do with our eyes? Our eyes evaluate. Our eyes test. Our eyes see. And so, when what is God doing with his eyes? God is watching. He's testing. He's evaluating. He has a certain advantage over us, though, in that he sees truly. Our eyes often get things wrong. His eyes see truly. And what's he doing with this evaluation? Well, he's testing us. He's looking at us. How will we respond to the destruction of the foundations of our society? Will we worship him? Will we take refuge in the Lord? Because there's a second point to his testing. The Lord tests the righteous, verse 5, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is testing you. He is evaluating you. He's watching you to see what you will do in response to the destruction of the foundations. Will you run away? Or will you run to him? Because God hates the one who loves violence. God's soul. And when we talk about the soul of somebody, we're talking about their deepest, most inward part. The soul refers to the inner part of a person at the core of, God, of who God is. He hates the wicked. And as we saw earlier, he hates the wicked because he is love. Love is at the heart of who God is. God only hates the wicked because he loves them. And because God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence, therefore God calls you to hate the wicked and hate the one who loves violence. Will you, and, and that's, it's, one of those, it's one of those things that we've, we've gotten so used to thinking of, oh, anger is just bad. Uh, David Pollison's book, Good and Angry, if you, if, you, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it because he, he points out that, that without anger, we'd, we'd never accomplish anything in the world. Because what is it that motivates you to do something? Well, there's a problem. We've got to do something about it. So anger is not a bad thing. Anger was certainly not a bad thing when Jesus saw the money changers in the temple. He got angry and he did something about it. There is a righteous anger that should be used well. When you see a problem and you're angry about it, the, the challenge is always how do you use that anger well rather than allowing it to run off the rails. And that's why, and that's 
that's probably why we we read we read from Second Thessalonians one because because here Psalm eleven when when the psalmist says in in, in verse six. Let God rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Yeah. Think about that. You know, fire, sulfur, scorching wind. Hmm. That sounds an awful lot like what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. I mean, the psalmist is asking God to utterly destroy the wicked forever. Bring eschatological judgment upon them like you did to Sodom. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And that's what Paul prayed for in Second Thessalonians 1 when we that it God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus you know, Paul is saying that what the psalmist prayed for in Psalm 11 is what Jesus will do they will suffer, Paul says, the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. But notice, this is what God does. This is what our Lord Jesus does. After all, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. As we look at the injustice in this world, as we see the foundations of our society being destroyed, Part of what we need to do is recognize that we are not God. We are not the ones who bring vengeance. We are not the ones who establish righteousness on the earth. But we also are not those who run away. What's, what's left? Don't run away. Just because you see everything falling apart around you, don't give up. But also don't pretend that you're God. You're not going to fix this. What can you do? Live righteously. I'd actually point out, how was it that the far left was able to accomplish so much? They actually did it by starting small, doing little things, and sort of building in small places and doing small things and they built a whole way of thinking that wound up transforming the whole culture. Ironically enough, they took Psalm 11's advice except they used it for nefarious purposes. I'm convinced that if we if we're not trying to we're not, we're not trying to change the world, we're trying to do righteousness. We're trying to live righteously, faithfully in our community with the people that we live around. And as we do that, I mean, it's something that, that I find striking in, the, in my, what I referred to as my non-traditional shepherding group. Uh, the Beer and Buildings group that I'm part of, for the first year, they vaguely knew I was a pastor, but they didn't ask a lot of questions about that. After a year, it's now every Beer and Buildings that I'm getting, I'm spending over half the time in theological, pastoral, spiritual conversations, largely with post-Christian, non-Christian, various other things. How do you make disciples? You don't have to wait for them to say, I want to be a Christian. You start by saying, I'm going to live faithfully and call people around me to walk this way and live this way, and that's going to be something. That, what will God do? That, that, that's his job. I 
His job is to change hearts, change lives. My job is to do what is right. Because that's why, as yeah, remember who God is. He's the one who dwells in His holy temple. His throne is in heaven. And if you take refuge in the Lord and worship Him, then you must do what's right. For the Lord is righteous. Verse seven. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. One thing to remember is that Jesus has already changed the world. When he was seated at the right hand of the Father, he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has already done this. That's, that's a done deal. There's nothing you can do. I hope you don't want to undo that, but it's already his. And so your job is to be the righteous, to live according to God's holy and righteous standard, the very standard that's being destroyed. And yes, stand up for the oppressed. Do what we can to protect the innocent. Welcome into our homes and into our lives those who are afflicted by the destruction of the foundations. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. And if you want to see what that looks like, look at Jesus. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The one who was God who entered our broken world where the creator became a creature, the lawgiver became subject to his own law. And when Jesus entered our world, when he became present with us, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he didn't actually fix everything right away. He entered into our broken world and he lived among us. And how did he triumph over all the powers? Through his death. Jesus' definition of victory looks awfully strange to us. It's why when Paul says, talks about the Thessalonians suffering and affliction, he considers it a blessed thing. Peter also, when he writes in 1 Peter, talks about how it is a gracious thing to suffer with Christ. God, this is a, this is, you are blessed when you suffer with Christ. And we the upright shall behold his face. As Hebrews put it, we, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor through the suffering of death. How do we see Jesus? Not yet with our eyes. Right now we see him by faith. But when we see him by faith, we see that, yes, our, our calling is to live righteous, faithful lives, doing that which he calls us to do, being faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, trusting that King Jesus will continue what he started and bring it to completion on his glorious day. So let's ask him to keep doing that. Father, you've, you've started and you have begun in, in bringing about your kingdom, in establishing and, re, and remaking all things. And we, we thank you that you have done this in seating Jesus at your right hand. We thank you that there is a king who sits at your right hand in glory. And Father, we don't yet see everything under his feet and we long for that day. We long for the day when, when the foundations will be re- rebuilt and restored. Not just foundations of one little country here in the middle of nowhere, but rather the foundations of your kingdom, the foundations of, of, of the, the new heavens, the new earth, the, the world the way things should be. Lord, help us to, to live as those who belong to Jesus, to live as your righteous people who, who do righteous deeds because you are righteous. And so let us behold your face and see your great 
power, your great love, your great mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.